Romans 12. The entirety of the chapter, listen to the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. The prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So reads... God's word. Such is the instruction to the church. Wouldn't it be a blessing if the second half of Romans 12 here described the family fellowship here at Grace Church of DuPage? Wouldn't that be a blessing? We read as we get into chapter 12 
we've talked about it each of the last three Sundays. This is the, the biggest turning point in this lengthy and detailed explanation of the gospel. It tells us what it looks like, or at least it begins to tell us what it looks like as we embrace the truths that have been described over the past 11 chapters. The, the salvation that comes to us in the midst of our need, in our deadness, in our helpless state, the salvation that comes to us from God as an expression of his love through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, really through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he causes us to be born again to a living hope, as Nick was reading this morning from 1 Peter. He, he does his work in us so that we're reconciled to him. We're adopted into his family. All of this at his own choice, all of it at his own cost, all of it with the realization that if he doesn't do this, none of us are reconciled to God. That whole description given, that the, the, the three-chapter apologetic on how to understand his Old Testament relationship with Israel, or better, his relationship with Old Testament Israel, and the status of the promises that he made to them, all of that covered. And then we get to the single biggest turning point where all of that is wrapped together in the description, the mercies of God. And we're told then, in view of these mercies, that we should present ourselves as a living sacrifice. We should seek to resist conformity to the world around us, but rather in, that, in place of that to be transformed into his likeness by the renewing of our minds according to the word and the spirit, if we draw in those themes from earlier in this letter. That's our calling. That's what we're supposed to do. And, and that sets up what's coming. And we heard that two weeks ago. And then last Sunday, we recognized what it is, how that begins, what happens in us first. And there's a humility that comes over us in response to the mercies of God. That's what we saw as, chapter, or as verses 3 through 8 began to unfold. We don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but we think with sober judgment. Why? Because we're recipients of all of this. It's been given to us by a gracious and sovereign God. This great salvation, this standing in his family, this opportunity to participate with him and the unfolding work of redemption that he's doing in this world. And that's exactly what comes. As this humility comes upon us, we recognize that our calling, really, is just to receive the gifts that come to us through his saving grace that form us into one family, that cause us to fit together. We exercise these gifts and we exercise them with our whole heart. The very core of our identity is tied into the utilization of these gifts together with the body of Christ toward the accomplishment of the purpose of God in here and out there in here among us and out there through us in our gospel witness. We could stumble over that little phrase that says you, 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 you exercise your gift according to the measure of faith you've given. We talked about a couple of possibilities of what that means last, meant last week. A good summary, a good way to think about it is recognize that 
God has given you his grace, the measure of faith. He has given you faith to trust and believe. So at God's own choice, he's decided to incorporate you into his family and then to give you a unique role in his developing plan of redemption as it unfolds in this world. That's a stunning privilege, isn't it? Does it sound like too much to draw on that and to say, let this be the core of your identity, the core of your self-understanding? You could hear that all on its own, and you could think, well, the church actually just wants our best, and so they're having to kind of present a sales pitch on how that should work. And, um, you know, it's probably in some way just a ploy to get money. That's the way people think about things these days. It's not the way we think about things at Grace Church, and we're thankful for that. But as we put it in this way, recognizing that measure of faith is just acknowledging God chose you. He redeemed you. He made you his child. He gave you an eternal future, an inheritance that will never perish or spoil or fade. It's being kept in heaven for you. And he gave you a gift to contribute to his work. He gave you a gift to contribute to his mission. He gave you a role to play in the family. We have chores. And what we're being told is to do them with our whole heart. And let that be our understanding of who we are and everything else around this. Every, everything else that we do in this life is incidental to this calling. That's what brings us to the place that we're at this morning. There's a summary reminder of where we've come through Romans 12, 1 through 8. Now we begin in verse 9, and we get for the first time to some specific descriptions of what it actually looks like in the community of believers once the gospel starts taking root. If we present ourselves as a living sacrifice and resist conformity to the world but are transformed by the renewing of our minds such that in humility we pursue the exercise of our gifts together with one another uh, as, as a, a, a demonstration, an affirmation, an engagement with one another affirming who we understand ourselves to be, then what does it look like? What are the characteristics of that community? So when I say, wouldn't it be a blessing these were characteristic of Grace Church? It's because they're supposed to be characteristic of all genuine believers. This is a description of what it looks like to walk with Jesus in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is what it looks like to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As you're transformed, this, this is it. Here's the description. So let's walk through it. Let's see what it tells us. And let's think all along the way, First of all, evaluating ourselves, also evaluating the body of which we're a part, and thinking, God, what do I do with this? How do I respond to this word? And we'll talk a little bit about response as we get to the finish this morning. So let's just walk through this. We suggested that this passage could be divided into exactly where it's divided is a little bit hard, but we essentially are seeing loving well within the body, inside the body, also loving well outside the body. That's the, the outline that's in your bulletin this morning. And we made that divide between verse 16 and verse 17. I think that's 
I think that's where it happens most clearly, but we have to grant that verse 14 already introduces the second half. So it's hard to know whether 14 should belong with the second half of loving outside the body or if it belongs with the first half. And I think there actually might be good reason, if I remember to tell you when we get there, there might actually be good reason why 14 previews what's coming, even while Paul is still addressing characteristics inside the body. So let's look at this. What does he tell us? The first thing he says, let love be genuine. That seems pretty easy and direct, right? That, that means let it be unfeigned. Let it be without hypocrisy. Let it be sincere. Those are different ways that different translations have stated this. But you know what's interesting about this? And I don't talk a lot about Greek grammar. Honestly, I'm not that good at it. And that's one of the reasons I don't talk about it much. But what's interesting here is that there's no imperative in that statement, let love be genuine. In fact, there's not even a verb there. All Paul wrote after verse 8, the next words were, the love unfeigned or without hypocrisy. Unfeigned is a good word because it's one word in the original. He wrote three words, the love unfeigned. What love? He hasn't mentioned it yet. And unfeigned, there's no command here. Now, I think let love be genuine is a good translation of what Paul meant there. But what we miss is how much what he just said about love depends on what he has said up to now. So what he's suggesting is that this presenting of our bodies as a living sacrifice and this humble exercising of our gifts and demonstration of a transformed life, all of that is an expression of love. It's a response of love to God. And now he's saying that love should be genuine. It should be real. It should be sincere. It should be unmixed. It should be unfaked, honest, straightforward love of God. And that ends up being the heading over the rest of this chapter. And some would suggest that it's the heading over this chapter all the way to chapter 13, verse 10, which makes a very similar statement to what we are hearing right now. So genuine love, simply stated as it is, is Paul's controlling idea over this next section. And then I think he just starts unpacking what genuine love looks like. Because the verbs don't come really in the next part of the verse either. They're, they're participles. They're, it's like the love unfeigned, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good. It's almost like that's the characteristic, that's the context in which this genuine love is being demonstrated or this love is being, uh, the, the genuineness of this love is being preserved. He's saying your love is genuine and by the way, one of the best characteristics of genuine love is that it hates evil and loves good. There's no place, we might say, in sincere, genuine love for any sort of an appetite for evil, even any sort of an appreciation or fascination with it. That can be convicting at times. Some of us find evil amusing in different expressions. What Paul is saying is that genuine love never does that. It doesn't take any pleasure in wrongdoing of any sort. And he'll circle back through that characteristic more than once as this passage progresses. 
So genuine love abhors evil, it loves good. And actually in its place, you might even say that this is what displaces any opportunity or any, any expression of a love of evil or, or anything less than good. It, it just shows its love for one another. Love one another in brotherly affection. A lot of people try to make a big difference out of the words agape and phileo in, in the original. Really, the differences aren't that vast. They, they work interchangeably at times. They surely work in complement at other times. And here is one of those complementary sections where you see that this love, agape, that's genuine, shows itself right out of the blocks as brotherly affection. You ever heard people say, well, I have to love them, but I don't have to like them. Can I give a very deep and rich, targeted, theological response to that statement? Baloney. <laughs> right? That's not how it works. Genuine love doesn't draw that kind of distinction. Genuine love isn't self-protective in that way. Genuine love is devoted to the brothers and sisters in the body with a brotherly affection, a warm, loving expression to one another, seeking to outdo one another and showing honor. This doesn't turn it into a competition such that you, you rejoice and do a touchdown dance when you win and you, you grumble and complain when you lose. It's not that kind of competition. Outdoing one another and showing honor is recognizing the fact that there's no way to fully understand the significance of each brother and sister in Christ. Just as we were talking a few moments ago about the fact that God chose us and therefore that should make a difference in how we understand ourselves and how we live our lives, it's true of one another as well. When we look at one another within the body of Christ, professing believers in the Lord Jesus who are seeking to walk in a manner worthy of him and are, are living together in this body with him and with one another, showing that genuine brotherly affection, there's no way to honor Christ in one another too much. So this call to outdo one another in showing honor is a call to recognize the work that God is doing in each and every one of us and affirming that, drawing attention to it. We'll, we'll see as this progresses, not letting any division work its way into those relationships. It just doesn't work like that. We outdo one another in showing honor because we love Jesus and we cannot believe what he's doing in and among us here. We can't believe what he's doing in our own hearts, but then he's doing it in your heart as well such that our hearts are drawn together in brotherly affection. How can we not honor that? And so we just outdo one another in showing honor. Each new expression of honor just sets the bar for the next. And it's not a stressful competition like I gotta figure out how to, how to, how to outdo. No, it's just... Oh, there was a loving expression. I'd like to love like that. By the grace of God, let me, let me love like that. There it is. And then there's all parts of me that I'm just saying no to. I'm just resisting in the power of the Spirit in order to love well the people around me. 
And I'm striving toward that. And when someone treats me with that honor, I want to honor them even more because I'm expecting that it probably cost them something to do that. There's life in the body. There's genuine saving faith. That's what it looks like. Well, let's keep on or we're going <laughs> to be here for an evening service and hospitality in homes isn't going to happen, right? So we should press on here. Do not be slothful in zeal. My wife pointed out this one on Wednesday night as we were praying in prayer meeting about this portion of Romans 12. It's really amazing to think that we can even be slothful in zeal, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you talk about human weakness. That's, that's a pretty good uh, uncovering of, of the depth of human weakness. Even in our zeal, we can be slothful. And that's, that's really what it means. Don't be lazy in zeal. Probably what it's talking about, it's probably tying all the way back to verse 1, and this is your spiritual worship, don't get lazy in your spiritual worship. In your exercising of your gifts with your whole heart, don't wear out in that work. Love that work so deeply that it always finds more energy and strength and love in your heart through the work of the gospel, by the grace of God, such that in my expression of worship, of spiritual worship, I'm, I'm, I'm never slothful. I, I, I don't feel lazy. I can be lazy in other work, but I'm never lazy in my worship. The body of Christ just means too much to me. It's like when I get in among the body, it just wakens me up. And I find a strength that I didn't realize was there until I'm in the company of other believers. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. I love that one. This could be translated either burning or boiling in spirit or in the spirit, right? And it's really hard to know, and there's a fair amount written on whether we're talking about the human spirit here or the Holy Spirit, but really it honestly doesn't matter, not because the two are interchangeable, but because we're talking about the work that the capital S spirit does in the lowercase s spirit. We're just not exactly sure how this phrase is intended to differentiate but we're talking about a fervency in spirit we're talking about a burning in spirit we're talking about either on fire in spirit or set on fire by the spirit and whichever one it is both of them are pretty good that this is this is this is apollos in acts 18 fervent in spirit right this is john the baptist answering the questions about who he is. And he said, I, I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming, the one who's, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's the same idea Paul has here. That's a great verse for preaching, by the way. That's what I pray, one of the two passages I pray every Sunday before I preach. God, baptize me with the Holy Spirit and with fire today for the preaching of the word because that's exactly what Jesus gives to each of us. So you want to pray for me? There's a way you can pray. All right? And as I pray for you, I'll pray that the Spirit of God will set you on fire. Understand the metaphorical description there. I did see a cartoon one time, Farside. 
Do you guys remember Farside? The older folks will. One of the greatest cartoons ever written. Single squares each day in the Tribune. Right? There was a woman with her nose, the glasses sliding down her nose on the, for, on the phone, just shouting into her boss's office. Ripley's Believe It or Not wants a picture of a Christian on fire for the Lord. I thought it was funnier at the time than you thought just now, but the description comes right from the page of Scripture. Fervent in spirit, on fire, in our faith in Christ. Does that describe us? And lest this fervency of spirit, lest this on fire in spirit, leads us to believe that Paul is talking about some sort of a spiritual ecstasy or or an overly emotional worship, or anything like that, the very next phrase ties it down. It ties it down to how fervency in spirit expresses itself and expresses itself as service to the Lord. So burning in spirit in your service to God. You can't help but think back to the exercise of your gifts with your whole heart because he's still on the same subject, just describing what it looks like when a believer is in love with God because of his many mercies that have been expressed. And that love is just stoked into a raging flame within the company of the body of Christ. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be a blessing if Grace Church of DuPage were described like this? Verse 12, these seem to hang together as well. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. We've already had a little meditation on hope this morning at the welcome. It's the same hope we're talking about here. The hope of eternal life, the absolute full assurance that Christ has saved me and there is an inheritance that's awaiting me in heaven. There's an inheritance that's awaiting us in heaven. That's our hope. That inheritance is Christ himself. It's awaiting us in heaven, and we are rejoicing in that hope, even in the present circumstances. Whatever those circumstances happen to be. And friends, there are circumstances in our world today that make rejoicing in hope hard, aren't there? Politics alone steals more rejoicing from our hope than almost any other category I can think of. And politically, we don't see a very hopeful picture before us these days. But what's the believer called to do even in the midst of that? Rejoice in hope. It means looking forward to the return of Christ and finally being free of my sin and being in his unshielded presence forever and then living today in this present world in light of that coming reality as though it were truer than anything else we see around us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that what is seen is temporal, what is unseen is eternal and we have a hard time holding on to that truth. Rejoicing in hope is rooted in the fact that the hope that is ours in Christ is strengthening us in joy right now here today in our present circumstances, no matter what they are. 
And Paul was pretty realistic about those as well. You know, Nero was emperor in Rome. Right? Paul understood the kind of circumstances that we can struggle with. And what's the very next word? Patient in tribulation. The assumption is that tribulation is going to be there. We're going to be facing opposition, turmoil. We're going to be facing perhaps even persecution. But we still rejoice in hope. And that rejoicing in hope is what gives us, fuels our patience in the midst of the tribulation of this present day. And I think it's also what drives us to the third phrase in this verse, which is constant in prayer. So we're rejoicing in hope. And it's enabling patience in tribulation. And it's driving us to our knees in prayer before God. Again, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of this body of believers that God has made us a part of. Wouldn't it be wonderful if these characteristics were true of this body? Continuing on, as that is accomplished within us, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer, it shows itself, I think, and I'm not saying there's a direct textual link here, but man, there's a flow of thought. It gets our eyes off of ourselves. It gets our eyes outside of our own heart. It turns our vision outward where it belongs. And we begin to contribute to the needs of the saints, to, to share in them, to even fellowship in them. Koinonuntes, do you recognize that word? It, 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 same root as the noun for fellowship. And that's what we do. We share, we fellowship in the needs of the saints. The suggestion is we don't just throw money at problems. We actually engage ourselves with one another at whatever point of need we happen to see among one another. And we seek to show hospitality. These are two pretty strong statements, right? Uh, contribute to the needs of others. That can disappear if you don't get the idea of the fellowshipping with. And then pursue hospitality or seek to show hospitality, depending on the translation you have in front of you. You know that, that word, that, that verb, seek to show? It comes back again in the next verse. Take a look at the next verse and see if you can figure out which word is the same word as seek to show. I'll make that a rhetorical question. It's the word persecute. Same verb. So if we wanted to find a word that captures both, maybe it's the word pursue. Pursue hospitality and bless those who pursue you. Very opposite expression, but by contrast, the fervency with which believers pursue hospitality, and this is in-home hospitality Sunday, the fervency with which genuine believers pursue hospitality is the same fervency with which a zealot pursues a religious enemy. That sets a pretty high watermark, don't you think? You follow what I'm saying there? So the very way that we're supposed to bless those who pursue, persecute us, 
There's the same word we're using for how we go after hospitality as believers. And again, this isn't the heroes of the faith or those called the full-time ministry. This is the body of Christ. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. Paul's just giving the characteristics. So with that, let's move on into 14 and following, recognizing that that's where some people make the break toward outside. We won't make it until 17, but we see why the break might be made there when we read this groundbreaking verse. And honestly, you guys, if I were going to preach on one verse today, it probably would be verse 14. It's because this is such a groundbreaking, cataclysmic, countercultural expression that Paul makes here when he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. And in case that went by too quickly, bless and do not curse them. Those are commands. You can read a little history and recognize that that cursing your opponents was a pretty common practice in the ancient world. Very few things could show the immediate difference between the culture at large and Christianity within that culture than the obedience of the church to this particular statement. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. How often do we feel like we are doing the Lord's work by cursing the evil that we see in our day and cursing the perpetrators of it and thinking that there is any sort of expression of hatred, cursing, that is appropriate from one human being to another as though there's a different category of sinners among humanity than the one that we were saved out of. How often does that become who we are? And we justify it. This is one of the places where we see a difference between what is on the page and how we live, and yet it's so hard to imagine living differently that we just build a dividing wall of separation in our minds between the truth that we affirm and our pattern of life. And we say, yes, the word says, bless those who persecute you. Praise God that he's given us everything we need in Christ to bless those who persecute us and bless and do not curse them. But then comes along somebody we don't appreciate very much. We don't have any trouble cursing them at all. And in fact, we think we've done something righteous in that observation. That can be our hearts. Do you understand what I mean? Just give me a nod if you do, because I don't want to take too much time on that. Wow. This is one of the reasons why there's no pulpit this morning. We're just having a family conversation. I think we have a hard time with this one. It doesn't come naturally to the human heart to bless those who persecute. We can bless those who ignore us. We can, even on occasion, bless those who are a little bit rude to us. But if it turns to persecution, I'm packing and I'm going to defend myself. That's where we go. 
really? Is that what we're called to? Let's keep on. We're staying for a few moments inside the church, but clearly Paul is introducing what's coming in 17 and following by verse 14. But I think he's plugged it in here, not just as an introduction, but because we might face this kind of challenge inside the church as much as outside. Or at least we can feel we do. So this one, I think, is a little ambiguous of whether it belongs inside or outside. Surely it has a place outside, but I'm saying it may also have a place inside to hear this word of instruction. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And then on to what that looks like. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. When, when you're this free with people such that you can actually return blessing for cursing, then rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep is not a problem at all. You just enter into each one's experience and when someone's facing joy, you are genuinely joyful with them. Even if their joy was something that displaces some joy you might have had. Maybe there's a brother or sister in your workplace. You're both up for the same promotion. One of you gets it, the other one doesn't. There's a good setting in which you can say, on the heels of verse 14, you can still rejoice with those who rejoice because of the work of the gospel in our hearts. It changes us into a new creation. And that future hope in which we rejoice is already present in our hearts to the extent that obedience to a passage like this is possible. So we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. And I have to say I love how this body does that. I'm sure it could always be better, but I've never been associated with a body of Christ that does that better than this one. Both of them rejoicing and weeping together with one another. Praise God. That fruit is not born of the heart of flesh. That characteristic is not true of the realm of Adam. It's only true of the realm of Christ. So what a blessed manifestation of spiritual fruit among us we see in that very expression. Rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, living in harmony with one another. Now that's generalized. That can be hard, even among Christians. Christians differ on a lot of things. Everything from, from well, political thought. We've talked about that a little bit earlier. Um, you know, uh, proper attire for different events. Um, uh, church schedule that you should be present for. Uh, marriage, parenting. We, we, can we, we can differ over very many things. We can find ourselves in a place with one another where if right now we needed to rejoice or weep with some particular person in the body, it would be hard to do so. What Paul is saying here is that in the community of believers, we keep short accounts such that if, in, if at any moment it's time to rejoice or to weep with anyone here, we're in a place where we can enter into that sincerely with genuine love. And that's what we do as we live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, 
You can hear how it continues on the same line. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Wow, there's a characteristic of a transformed community as well. When the needy come in among us, or when we're out there among them, a genuine heart for those in need. We aren't worried about what this might require of us, how it might change us, what it might cost us, uh, the inconvenience. Because the gospel of Christ at work in our own hearts has already filled up the void that could be drained by that experience. So the work of Christ in our hearts has already put us in a place where, where we can do just that. We can, we can give our eye to the lowly and be involved in, with them without the slightest concern. Never be wise in your own sight. That's what comes next. Can you imagine being free of that temptation? Never be wise in your own eyes. Some of you might think, I, you know what, I'm never wise in my own eyes. I, I just, I, I struggle to believe that I know best about anything. But you know what? We all wrestle with this one. Whenever we replay conversations in our minds and say, you know what, I should have said. And we utter a statement that makes us wise in our own eyes. Nobody else is there to appreciate the, the nugget of wisdom that just came to your mind. Can you imagine being free of that temptation? And the thought of any other person in this body of believers doesn't awaken a critical thought. It awakens a disposition of love that looks forward to the next opportunity to honor or rejoice or weep or just live in harmony together. Looks forward to the next opportunity to be together. Wouldn't it be a blessing if Grace Church of Page were described in this way? Repay no one evil for evil, but I love this. Give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Right? Here is the backside of verse 14. Don't repay evil for evil. Bless, do not curse. How do I bless? You know what? I, I, I picture someone calling some people into a classroom with a whiteboard and a marker and say, you know what? Let's brainstorm here. Let's give some thought to how we can do something honorable for this individual. Just calling together a committee that's going to help you honor the Lord in this word of instruction. You're not going to be haughty. You're never going to be wise in your own eyes. And you're, you're never going to repay evil for evil. But you're going to give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. You know what? I can't think of something honorable enough to replace or repair the relationship that I'm having with X or Y or Z. Could, could you few folks come in with me and, and let's give some thought to this. Let's give some prayer to this. Let's, let's apply our creativity to see how we might honor one another and how I personally might honor so-and-so in this circumstance. I want this to be genuine. I want it to be genuine love. Can you imagine doing that together, helping one another in that way? I'm struggling with this or that. Can you help me decide what's honorable here? And that goes into a general principle as well. If I were going to preach on a second single verse in the second half of Romans 12, it would be verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
You know what that's saying? It's saying there's no exceptions to anything that we've said so far. You can't control how someone thinks of you. But even if their disdain for you turns into persecution, the call is still to love. And then he finishes with one that we can do very quickly. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. You know, that future hope has two sides to it. The blessing of salvation and the cursing of judgment. And what we're being told here is that even when we bypass everything that we're fighting to bypass as we listen to this instruction, we don't have to worry about the fact that anybody's going to get in away with any expression of evil or persecution or opposition that we unjustly received. We don't have to worry about that. And Paul finishes with that very description. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Deuteronomy 32, the song of Moses in that passage, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You don't have to worry about it. The Lord is going to take care of it with perfect justice. That's precisely what gives you the freedom to bless and not curse. Justice is still going to be met, and it's going to be met with perfection. And you can rest in that to the point that you don't even need to worry about it. To the contrary, he says in verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. That's easy enough to understand. Meet his needs. Bless him. Don't curse. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. In the wake of what he has just said, clearly what Paul means there is if the one who's persecuting you, if your enemy doesn't recognize and receive the expression of love and grace that you're giving to him, all it's going to do is magnify his own judgment. So even there, you're doing the best thing by hearing this instruction and wholeheartedly, sincerely pursuing it and leaving all else to God because he alone knows what to do with it. And then he finishes. Do not be overcome by evil. Does that sound familiar? Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. But overcome evil with good. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul ties this off beautifully. One of the reasons we said at the beginning, Romans 12 should really come as a unit. We really should have preached it together. But if we tie it together intentionally enough... Over the three weeks, we can hear the unity of it, and that's what I wanted you to hear this morning, the unity of this passage telling us what it looks like to be a believer and asking the question, wouldn't it be a blessing if this were characteristic of us? Three Sundays ago, we finished, or actually it was actually two weeks ago, we finished the exposition of Romans 12, 1 and 2 by having a couple of elders come up and pray for us because we recognize there's no way to obey what we hear in that text apart from prayer. And folks, the same is true today. We're not going to go through that same exercise again, but I am going to give you an opportunity to pray silently 
as we finish here, to prepare your heart for communion, to pray about whatever God has laid on your heart in response to this text of Scripture. But also, as you're doing it, to recognize that you want to be praying for the body as a whole. You can pray for the body as a whole through your particular need that you're feeling, but don't stop with yourself. Seek God to do that among us. So take a moment in silent prayer right now, and as you are praying, I'm going to ask the musicians and the communion servers to come to the front to meet me here. And we'll give you an extended moment of silence to just continue in prayer. And even those of you who are coming, be in prayer as you come, all right? Don't look past this, but let's pray together, seeking God to enable this among us. Heavenly Father, our prayers have only begun this morning. Hearing your word for what it says means that we will be praying about this passage of scripture from now until the time that we step into your presence. It's not setting such a high bar that it's impossible because we've actually seen the impossible already accomplished in the fulfillment of our salvation that Father, it, is, it sets a bar that we are not used to. It sets a bar that, unfortunately, we can get used to the description and miss the meaning. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue working in us and through us by your Spirit to deepen us in this portion of Scripture and to help us hear and respond to the call of your Word in response to your many mercies expressed to us in Christ. And Father, as we seek your grace to do that work in us, I pray that you would strengthen us even by this remembrance today, this remembrance of the body and blood of the Lord that places squarely before us what it cost for us to hear and respond to your word in this passage. It costs the very life of your Son, our Savior, whose resurrection is now our hope. And Father, this moment, help us to remember the cost and to receive that with thanksgiving and with the opening of a word of intercession to help us now present ourselves as a living sacrifice to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.